want to talk a little bit about leadership today. I think it, that's what our text really is communicating. And if you take a look at any successful organization, government, company, or society, you're going to find good leadership. Human beings, as a species, we are communal people. We have always formed tribes and villages and cultures and societies, and we will always have leaders, whether good ones or bad ones. Now, while leadership has always been important because people have always been communal, the way we talk about leadership has changed over the years. So if you go to a bookstore today, go to Barnes & Noble and look at the leadership uh, shelf, you're going to see a bunch of books primarily with things like principles in them. Have a clear vision. Over-communicate the ethos you're trying to instill in your organization. Hire slowly. Fire quickly. You know, these are the kind of axioms that you see in leadership books today. In the Western world, during the 17th and 18th centuries, leadership was simply passed down through uh, powerful and wealthy families. So the emphasis on leadership in those eras uh, was taking care of your wealthy and well-connected friends. Right? You didn't really care about your employees. Where else were they going to go? Right? There's no other upward mobility. And back in the time and culture of the Bible, you'd be less apt to find books about leadership theories, and you wouldn't find books about principles on leadership. But what you might do is look to the lives of great leaders and try and emulate them. So, for example, if you were a king, you might look to King David and see how he did things, minus you know, the Bathsheba stuff. And if you um, wanted to know about wisdom and leadership, you might look to King Solomon and look at Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and things like that. And if you were in Palestine in the first century and you're walking down the street and you asked almost any Jewish person, who is the ultimate leader in your book? You would almost, without a doubt, get a response that would say, Moses. Moses is the leader. Moses was the man God used during the most important event in Israel's history, the great exodus from Egypt. Moses was humble and faithful. Moses was an advocate for the people when they rebelled against God and God wanted to zap them. Moses said, no, no, don't do that. He stood up for his people. Moses is the man traditionally thought to have crafted the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These books span the creation and the fall, the flood, and the patriarchs, Exodus, the laws and the blessings and commands of God. These books and the leadership of Moses communicated to the new people of God how to follow God and be faithful to him in a pagan world. Now, I say all of this because it's important for us to understand the primacy of Moses to the Jewish mind if we're going to understand our text this evening. Last Sunday, at the end of the message, I gave us some homework. I suggested, and I hope you followed through on this, that we meditate on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, Matthew 6, and Matthew 7. There are two reasons I suggested that text. The first and most powerful reason is because it's awesome, and because uh, those three chapters in the Bible are perhaps some of the best teaching on what life in the kingdom can actually look like. But second, I gave that homework to us because it helps us understand what's going on in in the text tonight. You see, Matthew wants to present Jesus 
in, a, in a certain way. He is an evangelist. And so he wants to present Jesus as a new and better leader than Moses. So, for example, Moses, the greatest leader in Israel, went through the parted sea in the Exodus. In Matthew chapter 3, Jesus goes through the waters of baptism. After passing through the sea, Moses led the Israelites into the desert and wandered there for 40 years where Israel rebelled, and Moses even screwed up so bad he didn't ever make it into the promised land. After passing through the waters of baptism, Jesus goes out into the desert for how long? 40 days. And there, rather than failing in the desert, he stands up to Satan and remains faithful to God. He is the representative of all of Israel in that moment. Moses went up on a mountain and received the law of God, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Jesus goes up on a mountain and gives a teaching on that law, teaching us the ethics behind the law, the heart of God behind the law. So, for example, in the law of Moses, it says, do not murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Jesus says, do not be angry with your brother or sister, for whoever is angry with his brother or sister shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to your brother or sister, you good for nothing shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, Raka, you fool, you worthless piece of junk, whoever says that shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery Gehenna. Right? The, the law of Moses says, do not commit adultery. Jesus teaches that the ethic behind that law is don't just not commit adultery, but don't objectify people of the opposite sex or the same sex don't objectify human beings made in the image of God to meet your own personal pleasure. Jesus comments on the Mosaic law, do not divorce. Jesus says, don't just not divorce. Love, have fidelity for a lifetime. Moses wrote down the word of God in five books, as we said Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And Matthew records the teachings of Jesus in his gospel in five blocks. Sermon on the Mount is the first one, if you're a note taker, Matthew 5 through 7. The teaching on mission is the second block of teaching, chapter 10. The teaching of parables in chapter 13. The teachings on discipleship in Matthew 18. And the fifth block of Jesus' teaching that Matthew collects is the Day of the Lord, the eschatological teachings, chapters 23, 24, and 25. And we're starting 23 right now. Now Moses was sent by God to deliver Israel from Egypt, her political enemy. Jesus was sent by God to deliver the world from sin and death, our ultimate enemy. Okay. Matthew is trying to show us, yeah, Moses is the greatest leader Israel has ever seen. One who is greater than Moses is now on the scene. His name is Jesus. Would you stand with me as we read Matthew 23, 1 through 12. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. Do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by people, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. 
They love the place of honor at banquets and the cheap seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. They love being called rabbi by people. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for there is one father, and he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Lord, it is easy to read this passage and be in agreement with Jesus and look judgmentally at the Pharisees. I pray in your grace, Holy Spirit, that you would turn the spotlight onto our hearts and that you would reveal to us the ways in which we are hypocritical, the ways in which we're trusting our own selves to lead or trusting leaders of the world over you. Would you be the leader of our life? Last couple of weeks, we've been in Matthew chapter 22, and we've seen several occasions where religious leaders have tried to challenge Jesus and discredit him in public. Jesus, uh, uh, you know, counters all of their arguments and basically makes them look dumb. And now, in chapter 23, Jesus addresses the crowds. That's important. Jesus is talking to the crowds, and he's probably within earshot of these religious leaders. He says, the Pharisees have set themselves up as authorities on how to interpret Scripture. He mentions that they have put themselves in the chair of Moses. This is kind of an interesting thing. Not the Bible, but Jewish tradition said that when Moses received the law on Mount Horeb from God, that there was this chair that he was sitting in, and he received the law in this magnificent chair. And then when Moses was about to die, and he passed on the mantle of leadership to Joshua, it was said that Joshua sat in this chair of Moses and received the law. It represents authority. The tradition goes on to say that the prophets sat in the chair of Moses, and now the Pharisees seem to have put themselves in the chair of Moses. Now, most scholars don't believe that there was actually a chair in a synagogue somewhere or in the temple where these Pharisees would sit. The point is that these leaders were making themselves out to be the authority in the line and the way of Moses on the scriptures. And just as an interesting side note, the Greek word here for chair is cathedra or cathedras. Some of you may know that in Roman Catholic dogma, uh, when the Pope sends out a new he, he tweets now, you know, when he tweets or when he writes a blog post or when he gives a, a sermon that you, you're supposed to pay attention, but it's not really authoritative. But if the Pope ever speaks from the chair, then it is supposed to be authoritative in line with Scripture almost. So, and, and what you call that when, when the Pope speaks out of the chair is ex cathedra, right? Out of the, this, the same idea out of this chair of Moses. Now, the confusing part about this passage is that Jesus says uh, they should do what the Pharisees say about the law, but they shouldn't follow what the Pharisees actually do. He's calling them hypocrites. And I think that part's kind of easy to grasp. Like, we understand what hypocrisy means. Uh, but the difficult part to grasp is that Jesus tells the crowds, you should do what the Pharisees teach you. 
I can think of multiple occasions in the same Gospel of Matthew where Jesus doesn't do what the Pharisees are teaching. In fact, why don't you take a few minutes, just one minute actually, turn to two or three people around you and see if you can come up with some ways that Jesus did not follow the teachings of the Pharisees. Take a few moments. All right, all right, all right. If you want to get out of here by the time the sounders start, let's, let's bring it back in. Um, what, what are some things that you came up with? What are some ways that Jesus did not follow the Pharisees? Sabbath. Okay, good. Anything else? I'm sorry? Eating with sinners. Yeah, sure enough. Yes, fasting. Very good, very good. Touching dead bodies, dead folk. Yeah, lots of crazy stuff going on. So lots of the the ways that the Pharisees were teaching, some of them quite biblical. Interesting how Jesus, um, you know, kind of with his presence, there's a shift in the way that the world works, even uh, even scripturally. So yeah, Jesus comes through on a Sabbath day and is picking the heads, he and his disciples out the grain. And, you know, the Pharisees got all bent out of shape. There's a person in synagogue. Can you, I, I just can't even imagine this. They're in synagogue worshiping God, the great healer, the great creator, got a withered arm, and they get mad that Jesus heals a person, a human being, an image bearer of God. So there are obviously multiple occasions in where Jesus disagrees with what the Pharisees are teaching, not, not just what they're doing. So what on earth is this passage talking about? What, is Jesus contradicting himself? Well, Again, part of what I try to do at the preaching moment on a Sunday is not just give you what's in the 12 verses that we're studying, but to kind of help teach us and remind us how it is that we approach Scripture. And we should always interpret Scripture, first of all, not with with Greek philosophy or with literary criticism, but we should always interpret Scripture, first of all, with Scripture, right? And so that's one of the exercises we just did, was we looked at Scripture uh, together, we we, we remembered amongst each other different occasions where there's a counterbalance to this teaching. We know that Jesus does not always agree with the Pharisees, and we know that we are supposed to. The Bible tells us to use discernment whenever we listen uh, to a Bible teacher. You should be discerning right now whether or not what I say lines up with Scripture, right? I hope you do that. We always want to interpret Scripture with Scripture. And Jesus recognizes at the same time that God calls certain people to devote their lives to studying and interpreting and teaching the Word of God. And if you don't think that's true and you say, well, obviously you think it's true because you're at this church, but, you know, I've run into people that say, you know, I don't need any of that. I just need me and my NIV or me and my New Testament or me and my Bible. And I got to say, if you're reading that in your native tongue— then you are in, you're relying on someone who's interpreted that for you. How many English versions are there of the Bible? I ha- they're different, aren't they? Because everyone's making an interpretive leap on certain translations. 
Nobody speaks ancient Hebrew or Koine Greek anymore. Even modern Greek readers have a hard time. In fact, we had a Greek woman in my Koine Greek class, and, and she had a really hard time. In fact, in some ways, it was harder for her because she says, well, that's not how it is in modern Greek. She kept saying that. I'm like, be quiet. I don't even know what it is in any Greek, right? But, but, but that's true. There is some interpretation that has to happen. Jesus is not saying that's bad. Paul talks about it all the time. So we can't be uh, uh, saying that that's a bad thing. Jesus recognizes that, hey, these Pharisees, they're supposed to be interpreting Scripture. We're supposed to be listening uh, to most of the things they say. You just got to discern whether it's right or not. But we really want to get to the point. Here's what Jesus says. His problem is that they tie up heavy burdens on people's shoulders but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. Why do they do that? Why is that their stance? Again, Jesus says, they do all their deeds to be noticed by people. Really interesting. The Greek word behind our translation, noticed, means being theatrical. Isn't that interesting? They do these things to put on a show for people. And when you do something to put on just a show for people, you probably don't really care whether they get what you're saying or not. And you certainly aren't going to take time out of your day to help them out. You just want to put on a good show. Jesus gives five examples. First of all, they broaden their phylacteries. All right, we've got a photo of a phylactery here that Joe's going to put up. Uh, Phylacteries, a person wore two. This comes out of the Bible, by the way. Uh, Deuteronomy, and you see uh, you're supposed to put the scripture close to your heart and close to your head. And so what people would do is they would actually take scriptures on pieces of paper or parchment and they would stick them in these boxes, right? In these leather boxes. And so they would wrap one up on their forearm, which would be close to your heart. And then they would stick one on their head. And you see that symbol on the guy's head there. It looks like kind of like a W with an extra thing. That is the Hebrew character Sheen which stands for Shema. You've heard the Shema, that is the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? That's the Shema. And that would be what a person would pray upon waking and sleeping. Um, Go ahead and go to the next one, Joe, just to show you a contemporary version. This is a a modern-day Israeli soldier uh, doing his prayers there, probably by the Wailing Wall, and he's got his his, um, phylactery on. Now, the deal with these phylacteries are that you're, you only need to wear them when you're doing set prayers. There are certain times of the day where uh, Jewish people would do their prayers. And what Jesus is saying is that these Pharisees, because they're all for show, they're broadening their phylacteries. I don't know if they have like gold inlaid ones and they're really big. And the other take on that is that they're probably wearing them around town when it's not prayer time. So it's like, look at us. We've got our scripture close to our head and our heart all the time. Okay? So that's one of his deals. Thank you, Joe. Uh, the second thing is that they lengthen the tassels on their robes. Uh, you're supposed to have these tassels as a, uh, as a man of God, and they represent different prayer ideas. And these guys would make theirs all extra long and flowy. Uh, they love places of honor. So they go to the banquets, and it's like, you know, they sit up front. Or, um, y- you know, they, in the synagogue, they, they sit up front, or maybe they put, uh, you know, have chairs up top. So everyone's like, hey, look at me. And then they love respectful greetings. And in the ancient uh, Near Eastern world, you would greet a person in public, your greeting in public would change depending on the person you're greeting. So like, let's say, uh, Schoon, you're a a merchant, right? And I'm a fellow merchant, and I come by and I say, hey, Schoon, what's up? How you doing? Like, uh, let's pretend it's modern day, right? Um, How you doing today? Good? Okay, cool. 
And then uh, I, I, pass, I pass Steve, and Steve's a wealthy landowner. Our dads used to be friends. And uh, Master Steve, how are you, brother? You are looking good today. Bless you. Bless you. Shalom lecha. Okay, and then I come over to, let's say, Deb. And Deb is the governess of, uh, of you know, Bellingham or something like that. I wouldn't look at her in the eye for one glorious, magnificent Deb. Greetings to you this fine day. All the Lord's blessing and honor be upon you, sister. Your graciousness precedes you. You know, something like that. So these guys were so uh, honored and they wanted to be so puffed up that they loved these long greetings in in the marketplace and in in the public spaces. And they loved titles. Rabbi. Now, today... uh, Wonderful you know, rabbi down the street at Beth Israel. Today, a rabbi is just basically the Jewish equivalent of what I do. Right? That's what I think of a rabbi as like a pastor for, for a Jewish synagogue. That's not what it meant in the first century. Literally, rabbi meant my great one. Uh, I think I might throw up if you called me my great one. Like, that is not okay. Don't ever do that. So, but th- this is the title that they liked for themselves, rabbi, my great one. Um, Notice that Jesus never styled himself as a rabbi. Sometimes people called him that, but he never wanted, he never asked for it. Uh, the other thing is teacher or leader was the equivalent, equivalent of master. So Jesus warns the crowds not to give people these titles, rabbi, great one, teacher, leader, or father. And again, we've got to take these prohibitions into context. What Jesus is referring to is taking honor that is due God and do God's Messiah and giving it to human beings. That's what he's getting at. Jesus is God in the flesh. Matthew's been telling us that since the first chapter. In, in the first century AD, Jesus actually came to the earth declaring the kingdom of, the, the kingdom of God. That sounded funny. He cast out demons. He healed the sick. He gave people hope. And he included the poor and the powerless. Jesus taught like no one had ever taught and no one has ever taught since. And yet the religious leaders of his own people, the very authority figures of God who are supposed to lead the people of God toward the Messiah and say, look, there he is, they were the ones who were denying Jesus' lordship and messiahship. They were pointing people away from Jesus. Let me put it this way. When the Lord is in your presence... You don't take the term rabbi. Like, if Jesus was here, no one's a great one around Jesus, right? That's his point. Like, I'm here, you're calling yourself great one and making a show. And when God is in the flesh dwelling in your midst, you don't set yourself up as leader of his people. Like, when the kingdom comes, or when the king comes, I don't care who you are, you bow down to the king. And when the Father, the creator of heaven and earth, comes to live in your midst, You set aside every other loyalty you have to the Father and the Father's anointing. So hear this. If you're like, dang, what do I call Dad now? I'm so used to calling him Father. This is not a prohibition against calling the paternal contributor of your DNA Father. Like, you can do that. That's okay. What this means is, it's a warning not to put anyone else in the place of Jesus, not even your family. This is not a command saying that we should never have teachers or leaders. Genesis tells us that we were created to lead. 
Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit gives some the gift of teaching and the gift of leadership and apostleship and service and all of these other great gifts. Teachers and leaders can be gifts to the church. So what's going on? I think Jesus is teaching humility and leadership. Every one of us, every one of us, even if there's children up here right now, are leaders in some realm of our lives, whether it's at work or in a family system, or I love to tell kids, you are the leader of one of the most precious and powerful things on earth. You are the leader of what you do with your and what you do with your body. You can imagine the power people have to affect the world around them. You are the leader of your little kingdom or queendom, if you will. The call here and the first step in this process, point number one, is that recognize that no matter what your station in life, whether you are a newborn or you are the president or a king, we all answer to the leader. That's Jesus. That's what his point is here. Now, that is so easy to say in theory, but so difficult in practice. And don't just read this passage as a warning to first century Jewish Pharisees. Yeah, the Pharisees were screwed up. This is a warning to the church as well. Why do you think Matthew, you know, Matthew wrote this like 30, 40, 50 years after Jesus was resurrected? Like, he doesn't really, really care what the Pharisees are doing. He's writing this to a church. And he's writing this to people he wants to convert to be part of the church. This is a word to us. Um, Francois Fenelon wrote, We say we want to forget the world, but in the depths of our hearts, we don't want the world to forget us. Right? It's almost amusing that the religious leaders were so honored in public. I've honestly met a handful of people in Bellingham who, when I meet them and they say, what do you do? And I say, I'm a pastor. They're like, you're the first pastor I have ever met. I mean, people don't even, well, you may not even know what I do. We should sit down sometime. I don't, I don't know. I do a lot of stuff. But anyway, <laughs> um, I'm definitely not honored in the sense of the respectful greetings in the marketplace, right? And yet within our own little Christian subculture, there's always the danger of seeking recognition. Pastors who love their faces pasted on buses and who have, parking spots that are closer to the door than the disabled parking spots that say pastor on them, Jesus says beware. Pastors who spend more on their suits than the average congregant in their congregation makes in a month, Jesus says beware. Pastors who spend more time on their blog posts than they do caring for their congregation, Jesus says beware. Pastors who critique these behaviors and other pastors during their sermons so they themselves appear humble and Jesus-y and are named Chris Eldridge, beware, like the spotlight's on me as well. And you're not off the hook either. Notice that Jesus is not even talking to the leaders at this point in time. He's talking to the crowds, right? The reason um, that, that there is this opportunity for leaders to be celebrities in the first place is because we love it. We love to be part of the winning team. We love it when our pastor just came out with a new book, right? Uh, just traveling to visit my grandmother in, in Louisville before she passed away. And of course, I start getting into the Bible Belt country. And, you know, people ask me, oh, how big's your church? That's like the first, oh, what do you do? I'm a pastor. How big's your church? Um, oh, I'm part of Andy Stanley's church or whatever it is. Like this big, like, 
It makes you feel good when you're part of the big deal. And see, if we're not careful, we will let the world's definition of success skew what we think is success in the church and in our church leadership. Rather than Jesus, who died nearly friendless and followerless on a Roman cross. There is something to be said about church momentum. When church is going well, or the pastor or someone on the, out of the church just came out with a new book, it's intoxicating. Or, you know, my experience with uh, certain professors that I, I just really admire and become friends with. And, oh, you know, I, I remember the time I was, I'm not going to name drop because that would be against what I'm saying. But you know what I mean? Like, but that, there's something intoxicating about that. And what happens is when, when we get caught up in these big movements and we, we, we put someone else on a pedestal, well, then I don't have to think anymore. And I can just say, I'm part of that thing that that person's leading, and it's really cool. Becomes a deadly, codependent relationship with a pastor, becomes the mind and the voice and the success of the church. And one after one after the other, these types of ministries crumble and fall. We need to remember that any teacher or leader worth following should lead in the character of Jesus and teach the word of God in a way that honors Jesus. You know, I mentioned earlier that uh, when the Pope speaks out of that chair, it's called ex cathedra, and as Protestants, we, we don't agree with that doctrine, that that word is especially authoritative against Scripture. But you know, we Protestants do the same exact thing. Almost all of us gravitate toward a theologian or a Bible scholar. Well, I'm with Bart, or I'm with Augustine, or I'm with Calvin, or I'm with Luther, or I'm with C.S. Lewis, or Tim Keller, or N.T. Wright. That's my guy. And we need to submit, even these great thinkers, even the the ones that we love, we need to submit them as well to Scripture and to the Lord. None of them is the Lord. None of them died for you and me. In my interpretation of this text, the first point is to recognize and honor Jesus as the leader and teacher, A1. And my second point flows naturally in that we are to submit then to this leader. We don't just recognize, hey, Jesus is the one, great, and I'm going to keep doing my thing. We recognize that he's the leader, and then we submit ourselves to him. And here lies the good news. This is the gospel of this message, right? So there's a lot of critique in this message. So if you're already a part of the church, be critiqued. But if you're here and you're not even sure about Jesus yet, check this out. Jesus is furious with the leadership of these Pharisees because they taught God's law, right? And this this law is called Torah, and they taught it as a burden to be put on people. They added their own traditions, and in their pride and in their insecurity, they put impossible standards on people, didn't help them live out these standards, and then acted as though they were living these standards. Jesus is so angry because the Pharisees were giving God, Jesus' father, a bad name. Listen to what one Jewish scholar writes about Torah. Torah is all that God has made known of his nature, of his character, and of his purpose. It is what he would have mankind do to follow him. It is the full revelation of God. 
How dare we then take this revelation of God's character and turn it into a burden to be borne on the back of other people? No wonder people have come to view God as indifferent and cold and authoritative and elitist. All the sages, the Pharisees, the scribes, they taught Torah, the law of God. Their yoke of instruction was Torah. But Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. Jesus says, I am the full expression of God the Father. Torah has done its duty. It's done a wonderful job at pointing everyone's eyes toward me. But now that Jesus is here in the flesh, he tells his own disciples, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. When the prostitute comes to Jesus and embarrasses all the religious leaders and she repents of her sin and weeps and anoints Jesus' feet, he's kind and compassionate to her, restores her, gives her dignity. That's the Father doing that. When Jesus takes off his cloak and wraps it around with a towel around his waist and he's washing people's muddy and otherwise dirty feet, that's the Father washing people's feet. When Jesus willingly goes to a cross and dies on our behalf, that is the Father doing those things. If you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. And there's no way you can look at Jesus and say, oh, the Father must be cold and indifferent and authoritative and elitist. There's no way you could say those things. That's why he's so angry with these Pharisees who have made his father out to be a tyrant that he's not. Being a disciple of Jesus is about following Jesus. It's not about seeing how miserable we can make ourselves by following rules made up by other unhappy people so that we could feel super holy. But I will say this, following Jesus is hard. We don't need extra burdens to put on ourselves. I mean, Jesus does say things like, die to yourself, submit to me, take up your cross and follow me. I mean, there's no two ways about it. Following Jesus is hard. But you know if you started doing it, it is the most natural thing in the world. It's as if every time we die to that part of ourselves and we live a little bit further in obedience to Christ, we realize, like, you know what? I've never felt so alive in my life. I've never so, felt so like I'm walking in truth and reality and light. That's what following Jesus is like. Because that's what we're created to do. Unlike the Pharisees who make high demands on people's lives but don't lift a finger to help, Jesus gives this teaching on his way to the He's the world's true king, and he's the king who truly died for the world. He gives us new life. He offers us his Holy Spirit, which leads me to my third point. After we've talked about the grace, the third point is take responsibility for following the leader. You know, I mentioned to you earlier how we like to exalt human leaders, and in the church we like to put leaders on pedestals. Part of the reason we do that is because there's a leadership vacuum if you were here last week, you heard me talking about how we're created to be image bearers of God, icons of God. You're created to lead. You're created to take initiative. You're created to be creative and to uh, cultivate the things that God has made to unlock the potential. And you do this 
you do this when you don't even when you cook you do this when you maintain things you do this when you pick up a tra the trash on the trash can you do this when you treat other people well in your workplace or in your family you do this you do this this is what we're created to do in full called to be creative. And whether that means cultivating your home raised bed garden or running a government, we are called to be image bearers of God. So the question then that I'm leading to is how can we open ourselves up to the work of the Holy Spirit? I want to say this. You've already made an important step tonight on a beautiful Bellingham day in March. Come on! I'm surprised there's half as many people here as there are. You've made an important decision. You've said, you know what? It's worth it. It's worth it to come and to worship with the people of God. I don't know all what happens, but there's something that happens. I will tell you this. When the Word of God is read, when Katie read the Scripture, the Spirit takes that and does things in you you won't even know about for time to come. When you submit yourself to the preaching, when you sing God's praises, when you have fellowship with each other, when we come to the table, God is at work in all those things. So you've started submitting yourself to the work of the Spirit. But you know, the Spirit is always at work. And there's certain ways we can open ourselves up to the work of the Spirit. And you know some of these things. You know when you are silent and still before Him, that there's a way that the Holy Spirit can work in us that, that we, He just won't budge in when we're too over busy and too overburdened. He just won't. He's just not pushy like that. And, and there's ways when we give ourselves intentionally to serve other people, the Spirit works in us. We open ourselves up, our lives up. And there's ways when we, when we read the Scripture, we study the Scripture, we meditate on Scripture, that the Spirit can speak to us and transform us from the inside out. So instead of leaving you with a task, let me ask you this. How is the God who died for you, who is the author of your new life, how is that Jesus inviting you to abide with Him in this season of life? How is He inviting you? Lord, we want to heed this as an invitation from you. We thank you, Lord, for the four Gospels in which we get to see your character on display. We get to see what the Father is like through your life. And Lord, we, we, we read those and we cannot believe that you're someone who bullies us or pressures us and you're the one who invites us to come and follow. We pray for your grace this evening that you would speak to each heart of what following you looks like in our current in our current lot in life, whether we're new parents or newly empty nesters, singles, recently working in the career field, recently laid off in the career field, whatever it is, whatever season we're in, transition or stability, would you invite us, Lord, into the avenue of meeting with you that will transform.